Welcome to the Sisters on the Front Lines podcast, where we unite with Christ to combat the shame surrounding young women struggling with pornography and share our stories and insights to gather more tools and weapons to fortify our stance on the front lines in the war against pornography. Alright, hello, welcome to this next episode of the Sisters on Frontlines podcast. As we enter into kind of this realm of more more professionals and conversations with like these scientific insights, I'm super excited for the, the guests that we have lined up, especially this one. His name is Brian Willoughby. He's a professor at BYU and one of the top researchers in pornography. I got referred to him by my last guest, Dr. Julie from, from maybe McBride. There we go. But yeah, he's awesome. I have read a ton of his stuff. He's he's just super scientific and his, his methods are super solid. And so I'm super excited to hear from him. Brian, will you give a little better intro on yourself? And I want to hear like professional wise, but also like family and hobbies wise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's great to be here. Happy to join you and to talk about a really important topic that I've been passionate about and studying in my line of work. Like you said, I'm a professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. I've been here for 13 years now. My specific background is in healthy relationship formation. And so a lot of my research is focused on healthy relationships and marriage. Particularly, I focus a lot on young adulthood. And so young adulthood dating, risk-taking behaviors, sexual behaviors, that's kind of how I got into the pornography area specifically is, is through healthy relationships and how it affects individuals trying to form healthy relationships. I'm also a fellow at the Wheatley Institution on campus where I do a lot of work with them on outreach and public scholarship, trying to get the research findings we're doing on campus out to the general public, also to policymakers. I'm an associate editor at the Journal of Sex Research, where I oversee a lot of the research done on pornography and sexual behaviors and relationships. So that's a little bit of academic background on me. In terms of family, I've been married for over 20 years to my wife, Cassie. We've got four kids. Our oldest is out on a mission right now in Brazil. We've got three at home, two boys, two girls, mostly teenagers right now. So we're right in the mix of all the fun teenager stuff, driving them around. Some of them can drive themselves now, which is nice. But we are a sports family. All my kids do sports. And so most of my weeknights are driving someone to practice or watching games. We also like to hike and we're a big movie family. We love we love watching movies together. Cool. Love it. You got a favorite favorite family movie? You know, someone asked me that yesterday and I was having a really hard time answering because we like different types of movies. And so I was having a hard time thinking about, we, we did just watch the Indiana Jones movies for the first time together. And my, my, we all really like those where we're prepping for the next one coming out this summer. (laughs) Um, So that, that, that's approximate good, good set of movies, but I'm not sure there's like one we'd all agree on is our favorite. Yeah, that's fair. That's good. Then you get different choices every night. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, sweet. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and start and we'll just kind of like go where the conversation flows. But I just want to kind of start like very general question from your research. What are the most important findings from the last 10 years regarding porn use? Yeah, that's a a really good question. And I think to put a little context on that, because I think one of the really important things that's come out in the research is we're we're just beginning to understand how things 
really fundamentally shifted about 15 years ago with the advent of smart technology and, and just the ways the internet changed in kind of the early 2000s, 2005 to 2010. You know, obviously pornography has been around forever, you know, basically ever since humans could draw that you could argue there's some form of, of pornography, but what pornography use has looked like has really changed very dramatically in the last 20 years. And, and research for the last 10 years, a big part of the research for the last decade has been trying to understand what does this look like now? And, and has it looked different than previous generations? Previous generations, and by that I mean, you know, even back into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, pornography use followed pretty typically, I think, what we kind of have in our head as this stereotypical pattern. It was largely male use, male adolescent use. A lot of it was done via magazines and videos. And we kind of have this image in our head of like, someone's got the magazines hidden in their bedroom somewhere, or someone's, you know, going into the adult video section of the of the store. And, and we have this kind of picture of this kind of isolated, solitary male pornography user. And in a lot of ways, even though there's obviously variation, that, that was a vast majority of what pornography used to look like 20, 30, 40 years ago. We know things are really different now. And I think that's one of the biggest things to understand is that, yes, there are still a lot of young adult and, and teenage and adult men that use pornography alone in isolation, just like we've had in previous generations. But the scope of pornography has really expanded. And like I said, that, that has a lot to do with the Internet. It has a lot to do with smartphone technology. It has a lot to do with just the volume of pornographic material that's out there and accessible to people now. The, the accessibility piece is such a huge change that's happened in the last 30 years is, is things are so much more accessible now and that's put pornography in front of so many more people. And what that's created is, is a much larger landscape of what pornography is, looks like. Now we know that although there are gender differences and I'm sure we'll dig into the gender differences a little bit as we talk, they're not as dramatic as they used to be. It's not the sense that, you know, the, the female pornography user is kind of the outlier anymore. There's certainly differences, but those differences have been changing and shrinking pretty dramatically. And, and part of that is just male and female use has been rising. There's a lot of evidence that pornography use has been on the rise, both in terms of the percent of people that have seen pornography in their life and then the frequency of pornography that people are consuming has been going up. Um, so that's a, a one big change. The other really big change has been how pornography has become so normative now because of these things that I've said that it's it's now largely also becoming a, a couple issue. And what I mean by that is because pornography in some ways, and this is something we'll probably come back to again in our conversation, is I'm going to use the word normative a lot. And, and I guess I should clarify, normative doesn't mean healthy, right? Just because most people do something, that's what makes it normative. It's, it's, it's a normal behavior in the sense that it's the average person does it. That doesn't mean that it's a good behavior or a healthy behavior. And so as pornography has largely become normative, meaning most people have used porn, most young adult men and many young adult women now regularly use pornography as they're coupling and dating and marrying each other. Now we see more and more young adults and adult couples that are having to navigate this issue in their relationship, regardless of their moral beliefs about pornography or religious beliefs about pornography more and more people are coming together in committed relationships where one or both of them have some ongoing history with pornography. And now they have to navigate that in their relationship. What does this look like? Do we tell each other about our pornography use? Do we use pornography use together? I'd say one of the most shocking statistics I tell people sometimes 
is that we're at a place based on some of the research that I've done and others have done, we're about one out of every three or so couples, one out of every almost two couples in some regards, use pornography together now. So not only are we at a normative place where most people in the world use pornography somewhat regularly, we're now also at a place where most couples or many couples, almost half of couples are reporting some regular pornography use together. So that those are, those are some of the big things that have come out in the research just in terms of trends. That was, yeah, that's super interesting. I'm wondering, is the one out of every three or one out of every two, is that worldwide or is that like U.S.? Most of that's based on U.S. data because okay. that's where we have the most data. I would suspect that's pretty similar in other like Europe and other more, you know, industrialized parts of the world. We don't have very good data mm-hmm. in less developed countries. I I suspect it might not be that different. You can probably find little pockets of the world where maybe it's different culturally. But I, I think for a lot of regions, even though we don't have a lot of data, I don't suspect that this is just a unique U.S. phenomenon, even though that's where most of our data is. Right, right. That makes sense. So you talked about accessibility has gone up and... I mean, we just had that that bill passed with the social media in, in Utah and the age restriction. And you said that you're working on, earlier you said you're working on legislation. What does that legislation look like that you guys are working on? Like, how, how do we even actually combat this problem? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one, particularly in the U.S., right? Because we, we value agency and choice and, and, and people having the rights to do what they want to do. And so it's, it's always harder to say, hey, you can't do this thing. Right. And so the, there's been, I think, good movement in the policy area. I, I helped several years ago as one of the key witnesses on the legislation that was passed in the state to declaring pornography a health crisis. And, and that, that bill has led them to some of these smaller bills, like, like you mentioned, the social media one. I, I think a lot of where the policy movement is going to be is on kids, because I think there's a fairly strong consensus in the scholarly community and in the general public that pornography is not good for kids, regardless of how you feel about it morally. I, I haven't met a lot of people that would say, yeah, I think it's great for a 12-year-old kid to be looking at pornography consistently. And so I, I think that's a key place where policy can focus in terms of putting some of these barriers up whether it's around social media, whether it's around internet access at school, at home. I I think a key piece of of policy, though, is not just restrictive policy, right? It's not just Mm -hmm. let's put as many blocks as we can on the internet. I think another big piece of policy is funding education, Mm -hmm. uh, is providing state or federal funds to create educational programs and interventions for for kids. That's one thing that I've I've talked to some state legislators about and, and some other state officers about is creating some of the education about, hey, can we get a statewide program in place where where parents can get online education about how to talk to their kids about pornography, increase digital literacy for parents so they understand that, hey, most of your your teenagers, they're not getting pornography from pornographic websites. They might get there eventually, but they're mostly getting it through social media, through TikTok, through Instagram. I think a lot of parents think, "Well, well, but Instagram bans nudity. You can't get porn from from Instagram and, and not understanding how social media works and how links in social media works. And so I think that digital literacy piece that can be funded through the state legislature is another good avenue for policy. Uh, so like I said, it's not just about restriction. It's also about education. Hmm. I, I love it. And so are you saying like you're thinking that the answer is not so much like putting 
well, don't let me put words in your mouth, <laughs> but what does it look like, like the sex education in school versus the sex education from the parents? Because in my opinion, like so much more impactful from the parents, but sometimes the kids don't get that. And, and when I was talking with Julie, she did her whole, you know, dissertation on different types of sex education and how that correlates with, with porn use. And Utah being abstinence only had like a higher frequency of porn use. And so I guess, I guess my question is like, what would that look like in school versus just in the home? Yeah. So, so for me, I, I've got a very specific opinion about the, the sex education aspect in the school system, because we we get stuck a lot in this kind of abstinence only versus comprehensive debate and in, in, in what the research shows here and there. But again, I'm, I'm a relationship scholar. I come from a relationship background. And so for me, if I could wave my magic wand and say, how should this be taught in the schools? I would say what we need is a relationship-based sex education. It's not just a health-based sex education. It's certainly important to teach kids about the health consequences of making healthy sexual decisions, but we oftentimes miss the relational aspects. How does sexual decision-making impact your success when it comes to relationships? For example, and, and hopefully this doesn't get us off on a tangent here, but part of another area of research that I work on is looking at sexual histories and sexual partners. And what we show in that research is that people that have multiple sexual partners in their life have a higher risk of divorce later in their life that people that wait to have sex till they're married actually have the highest likelihood of success when they're married. And part of that goes into this idea of what early sexual debut and earlier sexual decision-making, how it changes your approach to relationships and changes your approach to dating. And so I think if we can connect that relational focus to pornography, for example, I think that's really key because I hear all the time when I talk to youth and even young adults about pornography is what's the big deal. I'm not getting pregnant. I'm not getting anyone else pregnant. I'm not getting an STI. You know, like what what is the big deal? And and if if we have a relational mindset, well, the the big deal is the risk that this creates for the health of your future relationships. And so if we can wed that in the school systems and say, hey, pornography is another risk behavior. That's how I like to talk about it. It's a risk behavior. It increases your risk of these factors in your life. And one of those big ones is your your likelihood of having a successful long-term relationship, which is something most people want. And so I think the schools can can do that. And, and that creates it a, a space where it's not a moral position. It's not putting a teacher in a position where they have to moralize about pornography. It's no, we're teaching these kids the importance of avoiding pornography because having healthy relationships is good for society. And we want these kids to grow up as adults to have healthy relationships. So I, I think that's the school side. Now, I, I totally agree with what you said, though. Whatever happens in the schools is never going to replace what the parents are doing at home. And so, so yes, I'd love the schools to do that, everything I just said. But if I had to pick one, it's resources and education <clears throat> for parents and, and helping parents have those conversations. That's, that is absolutely critical, I think, for, for kids. Yeah, agreed. What does that conversation look like in the home? Because I think, I mean... A lot of times I myself am like saying, hey, go have these conversations with porn and with knowing your sexual identity with your kids. And then I think parents kind of hit a roadblock because they're like, "Okay, I'll do that. But what do I say? (laughs) So what does that look like? Yeah. You know, when I when I do seminars sometimes with parents in in other settings, I'll 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 bait them into a trick question. I'll ask, when do you think you should have the porn talk? with your kids. And, and I'll get different answers. You know, some will say, oh, you got to do it early. 
oh, you got to wait till they hit puberty. Or, you know, they'll, they'll have all these different responses. And then I always come back and say, you're all wrong. You never have the porn talk with your kids, because if all you ever talk to your kids about is pornography and it's disconnected from the intimacy talk and, and the general conversations you're having to, with them about sex and intimacy, that porn talk is going to be meaningless. And so I think that's a key part of this with parents is that when you're talking to your kids about porn, it has to be connected to other conversations you're having about sex in general. And, and, and what do you want to teach them about what sex looks like in terms of when it should happen and why it should happen and, and what are both the risks and the benefits? And that's the other thing that I always emphasize is that this can't just be a negative conversation with kids. It can't be a series of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You can say those things, but it always has to be paired with the, here's the things you should be doing. And here's a win. Because a lot of the conversations parents want to have with their kids, <clears throat> it's actually not a don't conversation. It's a win conversation. Mm-hmm. When should this happen? And help them see that, hey, I, I don't want you to have sex when you're a teenager because I want sex to be a beautiful thing that you have with your spouse in the future. And, and I want to help you understand that when you make these decisions early, how that can interfere or at least increase the risk of having this healthy relationship down the line. And, and so similar to what I said about the school system is even at home, parents need to talk about porn in some of these larger contexts. Now, to get into some of the specifics, I, I do think what's what's critical for parents is to have an early, and what I when I say early, I mean pre-puberty, conversation with kids about what is pornography, so define that and, and understand families might have different definitions for that about what, what do we consider pornographic in this house? So, so clearly define what it is. I encourage families to have maybe three categories. So here's, here's what we consider pornographic material. Here's maybe what we would consider inappropriate sexual material. And here's things that, you know, are fine. And again, those lines will blur a little bit, you know, so, so maybe, you know, most families are going to say, yeah, like explicit videos of people having sex, that's pornographic. But maybe we'll say, hey, you know, looking at a picture, if I, if I got a teenage boy, you know, looking at a picture of a woman in a skimpy bikini, we're not going to call that porn, but we're going to call that inappropriate sexual material. And I still want you to avoid it. And, and you're helping kids understand that there's a spectrum in a continuum of sexual content and sexual media out there. And you have that conversation because what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach them to make decisions in the context of what media are you consuming and why? And here's, here's our family rules and our family boundaries around these things. And you're helping them see that, Hey, I don't want you to look at porn and I don't want you to look at inappropriate sexual material for slightly different reasons. And here's what those different reasons are. And, and, and that way kids don't get in their head, like, Oh man, mom and dad are like, just putting this weird line in the sand. And if I I cross the line over a little bit, then they put all this in the same category and it it helps them see some nuance. And you have to be careful. You don't, like I said, you don't have 15 different categories. I like the three category one because I think most teenagers and, and, and older kids can kind of get their head around it. And so you help define things. That's an important thing early on. And then the other really important thing you do early on in these conversations is you say, we're having this conversation because this is a conversation we're going to continue to have as you go through your teenage years. And I want to be able to talk with you about pornography as it becomes part of 
what you see out there in the world. And, and, and part of how I frame that for parents is this is oftentimes not a conversation of here's all the things you're going to do to avoid pornography. When I've talked to my teenagers when they were younger about pornography, it was never a conversation of here's all the things you're going to do so that you never view porn. It was always a conversation of when you see porn, I want to be the first person you talk to because it's going to happen. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost inevitable in today's world, unless you like have barred your kids from the internet and phones and friends, they're going to see pornography at some point before they leave your house. I mean, the exposure rates close to a hundred percent now for, for, for adolescents. And so that early conversation is setting the stage for when it happens, whether it's 12 or 15 or 17, I want to be the first person to you tell and talk to because we talk about this stuff. And that's why I have this early conversation is just to help you understand that I'm a source of information. You can ask questions, concerns. That's what, what you're doing. And, and then the conversation just ebbs and flows based on the kids and their experience. Hmm. I love it. I think that was just great material. And I, I especially love like the, it's not a don't do this, don't do that conversation. It's just like, okay, when this does happen, here's what you're going to do. And you, you talked about, you have like the, the three, three categories and you talked about how it's kind of hard to define, you know, and different families are going to have different definitions of <clears throat> what is pornography. And that was something that I was talking to, to Julie about. And she mentioned that you have a validated scale. I believe it's for pornography use. Correct me if I'm wrong, but would you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this was based on early on in my career when I got into this field, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a, a skeptic in, in a lot of ways. When I go into research, I like to be really skeptical about it. And when I got into this area, one of the things I noticed is most scholars, when they when they do research on pornography, they were asking really simple questions on surveys. They were just asking people, hey, how often in the last week or in the last month have you viewed pornography? And, and I knew just from lived experience, I think most people understand this, is that people have really vastly different definitions about what is pornography. And so I, I did an early study where what I did is I, I, I did a survey and I, I listed out very, very specific types of sexual media, like just really, really clear, like, you know, a video about this, a picture of this, you know, all the way down to, like I said, a, a picture of a female in a bikini, right? So, so the wide spectrum of different types of sexual media. And then I asked people, just rate this on a scale of one to 10, how pornographic do you think this is? And and that study that got published based on that data showed that there was massive variation. Like people generally were on the same page in terms of ranking the items, but even the item that was super explicit, almost everyone is like, that's a nine or 10 on the, on the pornographic scale. I had like 10% of my samples, like that's a two. That's, that's, that's like a two porn. And I'm guessing those people are maybe thinking like, no, pornography is like really hardcore, maybe criminal type of stuff. Hmm. If it's just sex, that's not really pornographic. And then on the other end, the stuff that was more like swimsuit based, you know, like a, a catalog for Victoria's Secret type of thing. Most people said, no, that's like a two or a three. But again, I had 10% of the sample is like, no, that's a nine. That's a 10. That is hmm. pornography. And when I published that study, my big kind of push in the field was, we need to do a better job of measuring this because we don't, we have no idea what people are actually telling us when they say they view pornography. You can have someone that's saying, yeah, I look at porn five times a week and they're jumping on the Victoria's Secret website. And you have another person like, I watch pornography five times a week and they're into some 
serious criminal child pornography. And we're, we're telling us, we're, we're saying they're the same thing right now in a wreath. They're, they're both fives. And so I created this measure that you referred to with some of my colleagues at, at BYU to try to get a really clear measure of pornography use. And it's, it, it probably seems pretty simple to a lot of people, but the, the field hadn't gotten there yet. We're, we're basically, we took that idea from that previous study and the validated measure just asked people, instead of asking, do you look at pornography or trying to define pornography, we, we just very clearly across 20 items say, how often do you watch this kind of material? You know, this kind of video, this kind of picture, this kind of video, so that, and, and they're all kind of what, what I would consider either mainstream or aggressive violent forms of explicit pornography. But the way we measure it allows us to be really, really clear that we know what we're measuring. We know that we are measuring actual, traditional, explicit pornography with this measure to allow us to be more precise in the conclusions that we make. Yeah, super interesting and so helpful to to the field because you're right. And I think that's honestly where... I mean, we have a lot in, in Utah with like the addiction model and like people will come to their bishops and they're like, Bishop, I'm addicted to pornography. And they viewed it like two times in the last four months. And it's just hard to, and obviously it's not their fault, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's just hard to define what exactly it is. Right. And yeah, I'm curious, what are, what are your thoughts on the addiction model and on how we're currently treating pornography use or, or people who are struggling with pornography? Yeah. So I'll preface that by saying that a lot of the details I'm about to get into are, are all tied to what I would consider the one of the two major blank spots in terms of how we help people. And, and mm-hmm. one of those two major blank spots is we have almost no resources for people that are in what I like to call kind of the bad habit porn use pattern. We don't have language for them. We don't have resources for them. And that is most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I want to be clear. I, there's nothing inherently wrong with the addiction model. I think sometimes people, especially in my field, I see this all the time from my colleagues at other universities, they really like to jump on the addiction model and say, this is really problematic. We have, like you said, all these people that are not addicted to porn and they're going to therapists, they're going to religious leaders, they're getting bad information. You know, we've, we've got, you know, other groups out there that are really pushing for this addiction model and it's it's creating myths around what pornography is, is and isn't. I think there's validity in a lot of those points, but it's not because pornography is not addictive or compulsive and it's not to invalidate the very real experiences of people struggling with compulsive pornography use. So on the one hand, I think the addictive model is important for people to understand because like I said, every indication we have is that pornography has the potential to develop into a compulsive pattern. People have the ability and and the risk of developing compulsive and addictive pornography patterns. It it operates on the brain in similar ways as other what we call process or behavioral addictions like gambling. We have a lot of evidence that suggests pornography operates the same way. Now, where that gets twisted sometimes is, is I hear, and you've probably heard, you know, metaphors like, or analogies, pornography is just as addictive as meth and pornography is just as addictive as heroin or cocaine. There's zero scientific evidence that would that would suggest that. If, if you're looking for a drug parallel, it's alcohol. Uh, pornography operates very similar to alcohol, meaning that alcohol is a very normative behavior. Most people you know, you know, I guess maybe outside of Utah, 
But a lot of people, right, it's very normative to drink alcohol. And you have, you know, if you want to put people into three broad categories, you have alcoholics. There are people that are addicted to alcohol. That's not most people that drink alcohol. And, and like pornography, most people that use pornography are not addicted. It's a very small percent. My data and most people's data suggested somewhere between 10 and 12% of pornography users are showing true addictive compulsive patterns. But that group, while a very small group, is really important. It's important that they get resources, that they get clinical resources, the group therapy, 12-step programs. Like I said, is I, I don't want to just bash on the addiction model because that group needs it and it's important. Mm-hmm. What's missing though is this next big big group, right? Is is people that maybe struggle with, go back to the alcohol, right? Connection is people that maybe drink more than they should. People that have a hard time stopping drinking, it's affecting their weight, it's affecting their mood, it's affecting their relationships, right? So it's, it's not addiction, but it's still interfering with their happiness and their health. And, and pornography is the same way, is that we have a lot of people that are in this kind of, like I said, it's, it's a bad habit pattern. It's that I've tried to stop and I can't, you know, I, I, I have a month or two that's good and a month or two that's bad. I'm looking at it a couple times a month, right? That kind of pattern, which is very, very common, is not addiction. And sometimes we confuse, I can't stop or I, I, I slipped up with addiction, right? But like sometimes the other analogy I'll use with people is dieting, right? It's like, oh, I'm never going to eat that donut again. I want to stop eating donuts, but I had a bad day and I ate a donut, right? You're not addicted to donuts. You're having a hard time making healthy decisions. That group right now, like I said, it, we don't have a lot of resources for them. And so when they go to bishops and they go to friends and family members, the only thing oftentimes we know to do is to say, well, go to a 12-step program or go to a therapist. And, and the, the issue with that, and I hear this all the time, is these, these individuals will go to those settings and they'll look around and, and they'll hear, especially in like a 12-step program, they'll hear from someone who's truly dealing with addiction. And they'll say, that's not me. And so they kind of inherently sense that like, I don't think I fit with this group, but then they struggle because they say, well, where else am I supposed to go? Yeah. What else am I supposed to do? So I think that that is the concern I have with with it's not the addiction model. It's the fact that we 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 don't have anywhere else to send people. And then, like I said, I don't even think that's an issue of like everyone thinks it's addiction. It's almost a well, I don't know where else to send someone as a mm-hmm. bishop. You know, as you brought up that example, what else do I do with someone if I don't send them to a 12, 12 step program? Because there's we don't have the group of well, here's the group of people just kind of struggling with the bad habit that gets together once a week. We don't have that right now. And I think that it's a huge missing part for me right now. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I mean, one thing, just to plug for anyone listening, if you are looking for a resource like that, I think you know about this, Brian, but we have a club at BYU called the Unalone Club. We meet every Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. It's for like any skill, like does not matter if you've viewed pornography within the last three minutes or within the last three years. Like it is for anyone. We just have awesome presenters. The I'll, I'll put the links in the in the show notes, but that would be a good resource as kind of like an, an in-between. And if you're not ready to go in person to a 12-step meeting, because that can be scary. So that's a start. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good start. But, yeah. So I, w- one of the things that I've heard about like, the the 12 step and just the support groups is people do like having the accountability 
like you have you I mean you don't have to but you show up every week to the same people and maybe you find an accountability partner from that and I've heard a lot of people like the sharing portion too but I'm kind of curious with your your research all on you know kind of more focused towards relationships what does that look like what does pornography use look like in a dating relationship and in a marriage relationship should spouses be each other's accountability partners I'm guessing the answer is no but I want you to elaborate and just kind of outline what that looks like in the healthiest way very sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger and please ignore my very manly sick voice um, but this concludes part one of the Sisters on the Frontlines podcast episode with Dr. Brian Willoughby. If you want to hear the rest, head on over to part two. And thank you very much for listening.